tech-enabled services make it easier. Because if you think about our technology, our patient-facing smartphone app is connected to our electronic medical record system. right? So that makes it much easier to collect this information and use the information. This is surprising to a lot of people, but uh, a large percentage of therapists don't have electronic medical records. They actually take notes by pen and paper. So you can imagine that's very challenging for the status quo clinicians uh, to follow the data and practice population health. And so this technology could be very, very helpful to, to improve that. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Our guest today is Dr. David Moo, CEO of Cerebral, a leading telemental health company devoted to improving access to quality care. Despite a recent lawsuit involving their former CEO, Cerebral remains steadfast in its mission. In addition to leading Cerebral, David is a Harvard Medical School faculty member and director of the Innovation Council for Massachusetts General Hospital's psychiatry department. Today, David shares with me his insight on the future of mental health care and the transformative power of telehealth in the face of legal challenges. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks uh, for participating in this podcast. And I think you've done a lot of amazing work. And can you walk us through a little bit about your background, your journey, how you, you know, you decide to take the field that where you are in, but also transitioning it to be on the company side rather than in the clinic side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I went to medical school and uh, really enjoyed my psychiatry rotations. Really thought that it was a great time where you can spend time with your patients and understand uh, their life story. Um, and uh, did a postdoc uh, uh, doing data science research and trying to predict and prevent suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So how do we use digital biomarkers? How do we use patient-reported outcomes to then predict um when patients are at high risk of killing themselves or having those thoughts. And what through that, I learned that uh, the vast majority of uh, mental health uh, professionals do not use data when it comes to their clinical decision-making, when it comes to helping their patients. And that set me off on a journey to really leverage the speed of entrepreneurship uh, to improve the quality of mental health care uh, globally. So I started a, a telepsychiatry company, uh, that grew rapidly, and uh, that's Valera Health, and uh, started that actually during residency. Um, and uh, more recently, two years ago, I joined Cerebral, um, another uh, telemental health company as well. And six months ago, I took over as uh, CEO of Cerebral. I was I joined Cerebral as chief medical officer two years ago. Yeah, we're a big fan of, of Valera. Uh, Thomas Sang is one of our uh, the founders that we selected uh last year for our ADAPT program. Uh, so we're pretty familiar with that uh, and really love the work that they do over there. I do want to dive in um, a little bit on the company side later, but you know things that you mentioned earlier about using data to help a patient. Where are we now in the industry 
Has it changed much since what you saw when you were in research? Yeah, it's a real problem. So uh, this is uh, there's so many problems with our mental health system. So if you start at the top, access to care is a huge problem. If you're looking for a psychiatrist, it takes on average two to three months before you can get your first appointment. And when you actually go to your first appointment, uh, the vast majority of mental health professionals, over 80% of them, do not measure any clinical outcomes. Right. So if you think about if this were your diabetes doctor, if this were your endocrinologist, and they did not measure your blood sugar level or your hemoglobin A1C, you'd find a new doctor. But for some reason in mental health, this is endemic and this is the standard, this is the culture. And for decades, nothing has changed. This is something I think telehealth can change. Right. So um, right now, measurement is still a problem, but telehealth allows it to be much more easily accessible. So we can send them a survey before their visit or ping them with a survey on a regular basis through our app. So they fill fill these out. So we know, is their depression getting better? Mm-hmm. Is it getting worse? Are they still suicidal? These are, these are questions that we can begin to answer more easily with the technology. I'm not very familiar with, you know, patient with mental health. And you're saying that by asking them more regularly about getting feedback from them where they feel, feeling sometimes it comes and go. Mm-hmm. And how do you know what they say? It's, you know, because I think when you're saying earlier about endocrinologists, they have the blood test. That seems very objective. With this, it's almost, you know, some people, it's feeling feels like subjective to me. And how do you measure that? You're absolutely right, Christine. It is subjective. And I think one day we will find a blood test or probably a combination of different tests that would be able to objectively show uh, how um, a patient feels. But today, the best tool is asking patients, how are you feeling, right? And so we ask these validated surveys. These are research surveys. So for example, for depression, there's the scale called the PHQ-9, nine questions that we ask. And it pretty reliably tracks with their mood. And the idea here is that it does change through time. And the question is, they come in, you get their... PHQ-9 say it's at a high score and you put them on a medication and or you start talk therapy with them and you keep on measuring that and make sure that they're trending in the right direction. And if they're not, you want to make sure that you change your treatment plan. You might be headed in the wrong direction. Maybe you're not providing the right medication. Maybe um, therapy isn't working, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the data, to your point, is imperfect today, but it's data nonetheless and it's what we have to depend on. And so... And the other part, I think, also can be another piece that is, you know, every clinician, there's a good one, there's a bad one, there's excellent. And sometimes when you see a therapist, how do you know? Because maybe that moment after you talk to someone, oftentimes when you're feeling, at least what me, when I'm feeling stressed, when I talk to somebody, I feel good because I already emptied out my bucket. And then I go home. Maybe I don't feel so good anymore. So how do you know that what you see a therapist is a good therapist that you can just talk to your friend or somebody who can help you? Yeah. And so therapy, it, it all depends on clinical outcomes. How, uh, how sustainable is that improvement, right? So I would argue that good therapy teaches patients tools that they can then use and practice, and they do feel good in the long term. So it's not a temporary thing. It doesn't la- only last during the session, right? So good therapy does last. It does, has, it does have lasting effects, and we can measure that. 
And so um, you can imagine their process outcomes that you can measure. So you can say, did the patients of your patients, I'm talking about a therapist, of all of their patients, what percentage of their patients come to them regularly? So they make their regular visits and they're engaged, right? That's a nice process measure, right? And then there are clinical outcomes measures. What percentage of therapists, uh, you know, have over 95% of their patients do get better with time, right? That um, So you can measure these things. And again, these are things that are historically not measured. So now we're able to track these things and uh, get learnings for them as well. So we can ask our best therapists, hey, what is it that you do that engages the patient in care so well? Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? That, what are the processes there so that we can bake that into our standard operating procedures? The idea here, at a large level, is to bring in that uh, mindset of measuring. You know, we dare to measure these things so that then we can target the right clinical outcomes. So, is this something that easier to be tracked when you're running a telehealth, mental health uh, organization versus because you know now, like you mentioned earlier, it's so hard to find therapist right now. And then as a patient, you're desperate. It's hard for them oftentimes to ask like, what is your track record? Absolutely. Tech-enabled services make it easier because if you think about our technology, our patient-facing smartphone app is connected to our electronic medical record system, right? So that makes it much easier to collect this information and use the information. This is surprising to a lot of people, but a, a large percentage of therapists don't have electronic medical records. They actually take notes by pen and paper. So you can imagine that's very challenging for the status quo clinicians uh, to follow the data and practice population health. And so this technology could be very, very helpful to, to improve that. And um, maybe this is a good segue to tell us a little bit what does cerebral health do and how is it compared to other mental health telehealth out there? Yeah, so if you look at the status quo, as I mentioned, the wait times are really long on the order of months, uh, quality measures aren't measured, um, and there's no tailoring. When you uh, when you go to your local clinic, it's really the next man up, the next woman up, whoever's available will see you. So the cerebral experience is completely different. Uh, we are a telehealth company. We do uh, mental health, so talk therapy, as well as medication management in all 50 states. We make sure that patients get to care within three days if you of uh, signing up. Not only that, these are clinicians that we match to you based on your preferences. So if a patient comes in and says, I prefer a female therapist who is African-American, who has experience with uh, trauma-informed care, for the most part, we can honor that request. In addition to that, as I mentioned, we definitely measure clinical outcomes. So if someone comes in for depression, we're measuring them on a depression scale. If someone comes in with an anxiety disorder, we have a different scale for that. And so through all these different uh, initiatives, uh, we're able to provide high quality care to people who historically don't get them. I'll give you a story, a true patient story, and this really highlights uh, what we're trying to accomplish here. There was this patient who I'll call Bill, who when he talked to his therapist, his therapist noticed that he was on his smartphone and he was in his pickup truck on the side of the road. And the therapist asked, well, Bill, why are you in your car? Or what, what, what's going on? Um, and Bill paused for a second and said, well, I'm not comfortable telling my wife and my kids that I have depression. And I also don't make enough money where I have a private office at work where I can take a, uh, a therapy call. So I'm going to need you guys 
to meet me where I am because I'm sick and tired of meeting doctors where they are all my life. That is emblematic of what we're trying to do. We're trying to democratize access to mental health care to those populations who historically have not been able to uh, benefit from it. And it shows in the numbers, two-thirds of our patients uh, have never had the experience of getting their mental health treated prior to coming to Cerebral. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And so, you know, especially during the COVID time, I think the mental health issue becomes so prominent in everywhere. And even though it's been challenges um, many, many years before, and I feel like there's so many uh, technology ideas or to improve access to telehealth. How is Cerebral different, what they're offering compared to other companies out there who are also doing providing telehealth in a mental health space? Yeah, it's a good question, uh, Christine. What I would say is that we have one of the most data science-driven and evidence-backed treatment uh, programs. I'll give you an example of how we really leverage data science and machine learning uh, to improve uh, clinical safety um, as well as clinical quality. So I would argue that we have the most proactive suicide prevention program there is. I'll tell you what we do. So as I mentioned, we have our own EMR system. And uh, every day we get thousands of messages from our patients on this EMR system. Some of these messages have suicidal content in them. So some of them say, I want to kill myself. I don't want to go on anymore. I don't want to wake up. We use machine learning to identify which ones actually have suicidal content. And we can do that with 97% accuracy. And once we identify those patients, we reach out proactively to those patients. Within seven to 10 minutes, a crisis specialist is calling them, doing a risk assessment, making sure they're okay, and then triaging, triaging them to the right level of care. It could be reassurance and doing a safety plan. It could also be calling 911 or an emergency contact to make sure that they're safe. And that's that's the minority, frankly. Most of them need reassurance and some help at that time. So in short, we are proactively reaching out to people, whether it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon or 3 a.m. in the morning. The service is available 24-7 for our patients. We don't charge them extra uh, for this service, just the right thing to do uh, by our patients. And our patients love it. We get feedback back that says, you know, Cerebral literally saved my life. Cerebral saved my life. So the idea here is that we can eventually not just measure how much we decrease your depression scores, but how many lives we've saved. And so this is just one example of how we're using machine learning to improve the quality of care um, by, by really studying the data and targeting what really matters. So you're saying the patient have, can input their feeling on the, the text message or because they don't say it to their doctor's life, basically. Yeah, they, can, they do see the, the doctor's life as well. And this is in between appointments, right? Mm. So they see their doctor's life through telehealth appointments. And then in between, there's sometimes texting to reschedule appointments. Mm. 
something texting to say, hey, I need a refill on this medication or things along those lines. But sometimes they're also saying, hey, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not really not doing well, right? <laughs> and that's where, um, that's where this is so important. And Christine, it's important to compare this to what status quo is. And I think this is really important. Today, if we were, you would go to your mom and pop psychiatry shop, um, you would give them a call. And if it's after hours, you would get this message that all of us are so familiar with in the healthcare space. Uh, the voicemail would go say something along the lines of, if this is a life-threatening emergency, please hang up, a dial 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. And that and we that message may not be checked for days, if at all. And so that is what we're trying to replace. We're trying to get much better and much more proactive at helping those who are, um, who are in crisis. And so going back to the question about the metric, what metrics uh, can you share with us in terms of the success of the patient? How many of yes. the patients stay, come back, and then but also get better and not using the cerebral for a long time, hopefully? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so over 75% of our patients have clinically significant improvement in whichever their mental illness may be, whether that's depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, or whatnot. Um, more than half of our patients who come to us with some level of suicidal thinking are no longer suicidal after they work with us for about five to six months. And these are just the beginning. We're just beginning to measure these things at scale. And we want to continually improve our processes so that these numbers get larger and larger with time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I also want to ask you about, you mentioned that you joined Cerebral two years ago. Uh, you were in Valera before and, uh, and you took on the CEO role about six months ago. And I do want to briefly ask you a bit about the, currently, Cerebral is under the Justice Department investigation of allegation that it over-prescribed controlled substance like Adderall. So I know that there is limited information that you can share during this period, but what can you tell us about this and what prompted this investigation? Yeah, so I can't talk about the investigation itself, but what I can share is I'm confident about our clinical programs. So uh, our protocols and our guidelines are very simple. So we number one, we get, we use guidelines. They're not my own. It's not Dr. Mo's guidelines. These are guidelines um, that are published on UpToDate, which is a, uh, a, a online uh, reference. And it's used by millions of doctors across the world. When I was training at Harvard, we used, we used UpToDate as our clinical guidelines. So we encourage our clinicians to follow those guidelines. Um, and there's absolutely no quota on which diagnosis you give to which patients. There's absolutely no quota on what medications you prescribe to the patients. That's been true since at day one of the launching of Cerebral. So we're, again, we're very confident about our clinical programs and we have outcomes to show for it. Mm -hmm. So I assume, you know, I'm just making a conclusion. You took over as CEO this summer, probably is the transition due to this investigation. Um, I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but if that's the case, like what's your vision for Cerebral going forward? And how do you manage all this, you know, could this probably create a lot of uh, stress internally and what internal changes that you're implementing to address the challenges that Cerebral is currently facing and with the DOJ and then, you know, maybe after math of the, you know, once you get DOJ investigation, like, you know, the PR need to also narrate differently. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Our leaders 
are really mission-driven. Every single one of our leaders is either themselves or they have a family member or a friend who have suffered from mental illness. So we're here for mission. And the vast majority of them, everyone stayed because we know how the mission that we have here, and many of us refer our friends and family members into cerebral as patients because we trust um, the program that uh, uh, we're able to produce here. In terms of going, answering your question about going forward, um, there are a few things that I really want to focus on. As a clinician CEO, um, I want to really focus on access and quality. So the access front, it's not just getting patients to care within two to three days, but it's also meeting patients where they are in terms of referral channels. So if they want, or they're going to their primary care doctor, how can we make sure that they're aware that cerebral is there when they get referred to um, mental health services? Um, maybe it's hospital systems. Maybe it's working with insurance companies so that when they need uh, to get care, refer up uh, one of their members to get mental health care, uh, we, we can surface that way as well. So that's on the access front. The quality front is just as important, right? We talked about how we are using machine learning to predict suicidal behaviors. Well, why don't we use that same mechanism to predict other meaningful things? For example, we can use the same tools, the same machine learning algorithm to predict when patients may be at risk for domestic violence. And we can intervene and make sure that doesn't happen, right? We can also use the same algorithm to predict when patients are at risk of getting hospitalized or uh, at risk of going to the emergency room and then intervene and make sure that the patient feels supported and prevent unnecessary and preventable emergency room visits and hospitalizations. So there are many things with quality um, and access that we can improve on. Maybe the last thing I'll mention here um, is, uh, is, it, you know, is the diversity piece of this. This is really important. Many cultures, and I can say this, as a Chinese person, uh, it's, uh, mental health can be very taboo. And uh, how can we make this care accessible to populations um, who historically may have an increased taboo against seeking mental health care. Um, so we're very proud to have one of the most diverse clinician bases of any mental health clinic. 49% of our clinicians um, identify as African-American, Hispanic, um, Asian, and other. And that really helps because when a patient comes in and requests, let's say, a male Asian therapist, we can, for the most part, honor that. So those are the three tenets that I see going forward. It's access, it's quality, and it's diversity. In terms of your um, the, your uh, clinician, do you, is that, are they employee of Cerebral or how does that work? Yes, there's a combination of uh, 1099 as well as W2 uh, clinicians who work with us. We are a fully remote company, so no physical office, and we're in all 50 states. And I think it's great that you're thinking forward, but then also at the same time, sometimes when you have the elephant in the room, every time when you meet a new uh, potential partnership, they would ask about this uh, investigation probably. And what usually are the concerns and how you, how do you overcome that? You know, people... Our patients love us. If you actually look at our reviews, I mean, we have uh, you know on the App Store four point seven out of five. I, I have many tens of thousands of reviews. So our patients really benefit from this, and you know they people vote with their feet. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what really matters. The one stakeholder that I really care about is our patients, and when patients care, payers care, the health insurance companies care. So we actually have sixty million lives under coverage right now with insurance, and we expect that to uh, continue, continue to grow as well. I think there's a macro trend here as well that's really important to know, which is that 
the demand for mental health care grossly outstrips the supply of mental health professionals. And so there's a lot of people who need this. And so we, we're not finding real friction there. If there is a challenge, it actually has to do with the macroeconomic environments and the tightening of the capital markets. And that's affecting not just healthcare companies, but the startups, larger companies across the board. And so we are, um, we're adjusting to that reality. Um, but, uh, we're, uh, again, the, the macro here for the demand for mental health care is very, very robust. So oftentimes I hear people always say a lot of the time, men, the tele, mental health, telehealth for mental health, uh, tend to, um, increase access, but working with functional depression of, but not like severe mental illness. Does Rebel uh, address that? And if so, can you tell us more about it? How is it different? Of course. Yeah, we absolutely address the entire spectrum of uh, depression. Uh, we treat uh, mild, moderate depression as well as severe depression. Uh, we treat anxiety disorders. Uh, we have certain substance use disorders that we look at as well. PTSD, a bipolar disorder, which I'm really proud of. And we have a small opiate use disorder program as well. So we do treat uh, many uh, mental health uh, entities. Um, you know, for the bipolar disorder, just to give you a sense uh, how, again, we're using data to drive high quality care, sometimes bipolar patients are put on medications that require lab monitoring, regular lab monitoring, so regular blood draws. Um, and we monitor that very carefully. And uh, the vast majority of our patients are getting those regular blood draws, which keeps the dosing of their medication in a safe range. It's interesting. When you go to a brick and mortar clinic, and I've been going around asking, so what is your compliance with, with those labs? I've only gotten one answer. I don't know. We don't measure it. Right. So the idea here, again, is that telehealth allows us to measure so many different outcomes that then subserve, subserve the most important outcome, which is how the patients are doing on the clinical outcomes measure. But do you think uh, if you are in the brick and mortar, which is a smaller scale, that um, somebody can, who are the owner of the clinic, can become tech savvy and then come up with, there's so many different programs now to help people to better organize, better track their metric. They might have a better way of managing their patient because it's in their community, it's right there compared to what you guys offer? Yeah, so if you look at the studies and the data, it suggests pretty strongly. Uh, there are plenty of meta-analyses that show that uh, telehealth, specifically in mental health, is just as good as behavioral health uh, in person, right? So that that really is uh, important to know, right? So there is doubt and skepticism on the intuition level. But when you really look at the evidence, we've actually known this for many years, well before the pandemic. So then you might ask, well, why is it then that, um, that people didn't adopt telehealth until uh, 2020? Well, it's a cultural shift. Because frankly, Christina, if I called you in 2019 uh, and said, hey, let's do a video call, you would say, David, that's weird. Why would I be on a video call? Let me just call you on the phone, right? But because of the pandemic, we've very much normalized the idea of being on televideo together. And that has unlocked and enabled a generation of uh, patients who otherwise wouldn't get help to get help through uh, telehealth services. So I really think that was a, um, uh, a catalytic event that uh, increased the, the access to care for, for many, many millions of people. So what do you think what's next? Because I feel like now, you know, with the whole telehealth 
you increase the access for people with mental health, but it's more like increasing the access. But is there other way to kind of truly address the mental health patient to help them be healthy, just like, you know, your physical health, like, you know, that you don't need to go to see your mental health uh, clinician? Yeah, um, you know, again, I would say it's access and quality, right? So getting access to care is one thing. And you have to actually make sure that, you know, when the patient sees that clinician, the patient's actually getting better and that uh, that is measured on a, on a quantified basis. I think a big piece of this is also understanding that mental illnesses are episodic. Uh, people might be sick for three months, they get better, we'll have their treatment, and they're fine for the next nine months. But then they have another episode of depression. Right? So the idea is to build out a workflow that allows patients to come in and out of the system. So that's one dimension. Another, I would say, is uh, you know I don't like the uh, contrast between telehealth and brick and mortar as much, uh, because I think both are important. Both play very important roles. Uh, instead, I would draw the line between evidence-based high-quality care and non-evidence-based low-quality care. And so the best system, I think, in five, 10 years in the future, if I were to think, where, where is men- the mental health system headed? it actually has the entire continuum of services. So you come in as a patient and you answer surveys and then it triages you to the right level of care. It could be maybe an app-only care at the lightest end, and then it could be teletherapy, then it could be teletherapy and telepsychiatry with medications, then it could be in-person care, then it could be intensive outpatient care, it could be inpatient care at the very top. And the idea is that you get triage to the right level of care and you could seamlessly move between the different acuity levels, right? So that you don't have to have three apps on your phone and a number of your inpatient psychiatrists, right? You would seamlessly move above, uh, uh, up and down that acuity level depending on your need. If that's the future, that's what we have to start thinking about engineering today. Mm-hmm. And so, as I mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier, you were part of the founding team of Valera Health and then you move to Cerebral and... It's in a way what Cerebral and Valera Health is in the same space. And can you tell us more why the move? Yeah, it's a huge space. It's a very big space. And I think there are many, many, many companies that can be founded in this space. Um, Cerebral has a a couple of things that I think are very, very unique. Uh, One is scale. And so it's in all 50 states. So we can treat any American anywhere within two to three days. And I think that's a pretty unique value proposition. The second one is around the data. So we have our own electronic medical record system. And that's really powerful because then we have we can get data in real time and then share it back with the different stakeholders. We can share it back with the patients in real time so they know how they're doing, whether they're getting worse or better. We can share it back with clinicians to say, hey, you want to pay attention to this patient or that patient because uh, we have some suggested data that that patient may be getting a little bit worse. We can share it back with our healthcare partners. We can actually give monthly reports back to payers showing, hey, here's how quickly we were able to get your members to care. Here's their clinical outcomes. Here are some members you should focus on. So to me, data science is what's going to really revolutionize the field of mental health um, providers going forward. And uh, having your own EMR system and your own data infrastructure greatly uh, empowers you to uh, to get there first. My second to last question, I'm just reserving just in case I have my last question. Uh, so through this process, what are the top three lessons that you learned 
going into the industry, knowing what you knew then, and now you're telling yourself, I wish I knew this. Well, it's not obviously you knew this. Like this is the lesson that I learned that I'm going to hold on to it, that it can carry me in the future. Three lessons. Okay. All right. That's a challenging question. Um, let me think. Uh, so I would say a, a few things here. One, it's it's really important to have a panel of quality metrics, but you really want to focus on two or three because when you have five or 10 metrics, they all become watered down a little bit. So I think really figuring that piece out is very important. What are the top one, two, three metrics that you want to go after and define those early? The other thing is, you can sit on so much data, but you have to communicate it correctly to the different stakeholders. So when you you don't what as a psychiatrist, I could tell you I don't like it if someone gives me a, a ream of data on all my patients. What am I going to do with that? And so I want what I want is concise, uh, high integrity, actionable data. So give me that data that will actually change my decision making for this specific patient. And that is a much harder thing uh, to do than uh, to say uh, uh, to do than it is to say. So really focusing on that, and that takes a lot of talking to your clinicians and say, "Hey, was that helpful?" And sometimes you might think it's helpful, but they say, "No, it wasn't helpful at all. That was actually doesn't change anything." And then you have to follow that and continually adapt what you share back with the uh, clinician um, as much as uh, possible. Um, the third thing is. I uh, let's say a third lesson, um, and there are so many lessons. I'm just going to try to categorize and make sure that I'm not missing a, um, a, a salient one. Um, I would say the third thing is it's really important to have all of your teams on the same page in terms of principles of how. Um, so if you, your marketing team, your product team, your engineering team all have to have the same principles as your clinical team, your clinical operations team, your legal team, your compliance team, and so repeating the ethos and our you know, our mission is very clear, and I, I can't say enough. It's to democratize access to high quality mental health care for all. Have everyone know that and breathe that is really important so that we're all rowing the same direction and that uh, we have the same ethos that's permeating throughout the organization. And then my last question what does cerebral health, uh, cerebral do to help destigmatize mental health in? community that you stigmatize. I think not, you know, pretty much every community, I think, still stigmatize mental health. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we certainly proactively hiring a diverse uh, clinician base is really important. I get calls all the time saying, hey, David, do you know a, a Chinese therapist? Do you know a, a, you know, a, a Japanese psychiatrist? Things along those lines. So by increasing the clinician base and making sure that it's diverse, that's a really important piece of, uh, of all of this. And the second of all, it's, uh, we are working on this right now, figuring out how do we make our marketing more welcoming for patients who come from demographics that uh, historically have not accessed uh, um, uh, uh, mental health care. You know, there are some patients who are very comfortable sharing their mental health care um, uh, issues. Others are not. And how do we communicate that, that that's okay and that we are able to provide them care like Bill? Who uh, who uh, knows that this is going to be private, but still wants wants us to reassure him? How do we make sure that we're catering to those populations as well? And that's as much of a, a user experience um, uh, discussion as as it is a product and engineering uh, discussion. How does uh, having a diverse uh, therapist, psychiatrist, 
address the destigmatization of mental health? So I hear this all the time. So I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my friends who's a doctor uh, asked me, I, I, I'll talk to a therapist, um, but that therapist has to be Chinese because otherwise the therapist won't understand my background. They won't be able to relate to some of the issues that I'm dealing with. Right. So people sometimes, not all the time, feel comfortable, more comfortable sometimes, again, uh, relating to someone who has similar backgrounds. And it could be age, it could be gender is a big one, right? So especially for women who are coming to us for trauma, uh, they want to, uh, some, many times they say, I do not want to speak to a man. I want to speak to a female who, in um, other features as well, right? So it is very important in mental health. And that helps people get over the stigma of, I don't want to seek care. And it helps them uh, come into the fold and match with someone that they can uh, build a rapport with. And so my last question, as family members, you know, who probably are not trained psych- psychiatrists, how how important is it, it is for family member to be able to support somebody in their family who have the mental health and what are the access that they have? to get the tool? It really is critical uh, because uh, a lot of the times when I sometimes see patients and I ask, wow, you've been severely depressed for years. What stopped you from getting care? They'll say things like, oh, my family members. They said, my dad told me, don't be weak. My mom told me, uh, yeah, that's that's hocus pocus. Psychiatry is not real. Don't follow that. Right. Those things can be very damaging uh, to uh, to family members. And I, I, I guarantee you the intent was not to harm, um, but that's the end result. So I would encourage family members to be very open and meet patients where they are. Sometimes uh, maybe a family member does not want to talk about it. That's perfectly fine. And if they want to go seek care on their own terms, that's perfectly fine as well. Others want to share more. And that's perfectly fine as well. Just know that your family member is suffering and you have to meet them where they are uh, and meet them on their terms. And whatever they're asking for in terms of level of engagement, it's worth respecting. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Christine. This was fun. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.